Welcome to the Machines and Molecules podcast. Machines and Molecules hosts guests from chemistry, biochemistry, and life sciences, as well as machine learning. And our guest today is Uwe Bornscheier. Welcome, Uwe. Yeah, welcome, Ingmar. So, um, Uwe had an illustrious career. He actually started as a chemist, then I think went to Japan and got to know enzymes and proteins better and did a lot of uh, work in directed evolution back at the time, if I remember correctly from talking to you um, right after getting to know you. Um, he has, I think, recently gotten his 75th PhD candidate through um, the dissertation. Um, and um, basically, I would say most of Europe, um, most of European pharma companies, bio companies, have somebody who once was a part of Uwe's lab at the PhD level. Um, you name it, Covestro, Novartis, Roche, and so on and so forth. Um, so um, recently I was at a conference in Greifswald and everybody referred to how Uwe did this and that. So um, we're very pleased to have you. Yeah, I'm also very happy that uh, you offered the opportunity that we have the podcast today to talk about science, machines and molecules. Yes. Maybe can you, as a starter, explain to the audience what your field of interest is and explain to them a bit the scientific background and why it's interesting to work on what you're working on? Yeah, yes, of course. I'm happy to do so. So as you have learned already from Ingmar, I have studied chemistry. Um, at the University of Hanover, and I was very happy with these studies. But then, of course, when you approach your PhD, you think about what kind of uh, special field shall I concentrate on? And there is inorganic chemistry, physical chemistry, organic chemistry, and we also had technical chemistry in Hanover and a few other fields. And I like to do organic synthesis, but in the technical chemistry group, they already used enzymes at that time. And that roused my interest because I thought, hmm, this is uh, something different from classical organic synthesis uh, using natural catalysts to make molecules. And uh, I then joined that group um, for the diploma thesis, but also for the PhD. Uh, there we started with a handful of commercially available enzymes at that time, lipases, and there was no protein engineering, no nothing. And my uh, task was to develop uh, continuous reactions with these enzymes and also reactions in supercritical carbon dioxide as an alternative solvent, which was popular at that time. Um, so that was my first contact with enzymes. And during my postdoc in Japan, I again used enzymes, but in a different field of application that was a modification of heads and oils. Um, there I had my first contact with methods from molecular biology and microbiology. And I found this very fascinating, uh, what you can do uh, with all these methods, completely new to someone who has learned plain chemistry. Um, and afterwards, I went back to Germany for my so-called habilitation at the University of Stuttgart. And there I had the great opportunity to learn microbiology and molecular biology methods at hand in the group of Rolf Schmidt. We had five subgroups. I had, I was heading the biocatalysis team, but we had a genetics group, a fermentation group, a computer modeling group, a biosensors group. So I could uh, explore my experience um, and extend hands-on, um, <clears throat> learning hands-on methods uh, in a completely different discipline. 
Um, why is that important? Because around the same time, methods of protein engineering became more and more popular. Initially, people could only use rational design based on the protein structure, which is determined by X-ray crystallography of a crystal of a protein. But in the early 90s, uh, the now so-called directed evolution was invented as a new technique. And uh, this enables you to modify the amino acid sequence of the protein. And by this, you can, of course, uh, make the enzyme better for a given application. That means you can make it more stable, more active, broader substrate scope, uh, more selective, and so on. And uh, I thought to make molecules with the help of enzymes has a great advantage over traditional organic chemistry methods because you don't need protecting group chemistry, you don't need transition metals, and uh, overall enzymatic reactions are considered sustainable. Yeah, so um, maybe can you explain, first of all, what are enzymes, like how are they built up? Um, what are the building blocks? What is the difference between what you call rational design and directed evolution, like in, in approach in order to develop okay. these enzymes? So these are a bunch of questions in one sentence, and I try to explain this step by step. So enzymes are proteins, and they are composed of amino acids. In nature, there are 20 different amino acids. Uh, so you have 20 different, let's say, Lego bricks, which you can assemble together to build a house. And uh, each Lego brick has a different color, so to speak. And uh, then, of course, the order how you put these bricks together determines not only the uh, how the house might look like, uh, it has a certain sequence of st Lego bricks or Lego stones. And... Um, If you keep in mind that an average enzyme has maybe 200 amino acids in length and 20 natural amino acids are the building blocks, you have 20 to the power of 200 possible combinations. This number is unbelievably high, higher than uh, the number of atoms in the universe. So uh, that also means that Uh, you have a huge sequence space where exchanging amino acids within these 200 amino acids in length with the 20 different types of amino acids, you can shape the properties of the protein. So proteins, as I said, are composed of amino acids. The order of the amino acids is called primary sequence. Uh, then, um, depending on the order, secondary structural elements are formed which are called alpha helix or beta sheet. And there are also some short uh, uh, stretches of amino acids where you have no alpha helix or beta sheet as a, a structural um, uh -huh. unit. <clears throat> And then these secondary structures will assemble into tertiary structures. So you have a, um, an assembly of the protein chain in a 3D space. And somewhere within the 3D space are certain amino acid side chains which do the chemistry at the end. So they are called active site. Mm -hmm. Depending on the type of enzyme, they differ, of course, and must differ because different chemical reactions must be catalyzed by the help of the enzyme. For instance, in the lipase, you have a serine residue, which is supported by a histidine and an aspartic acid residue. 
Um, and then some proteins even assemble into multimeric structures. So two, three, four of these monomers in this three-dimensional structure assemble together, and then they make the really active enzyme. For instance, we worked a lot with transaminases, also very useful to make carbon compounds. And there, two subunits assemble together, and part of the active site comes from each of the subunits. So this is also important. It's not just a matter of chance that these dimers are formed. They are functionally required. That answers the first part of your question, yeah? hopefully. Yes. Yes, it does. Um, maybe uh, before you go to the second part about what's the difference between rational design and directed evolution, can I ask, is it a fair comparison to say the active site is kind of a tool and you attach it to the robotic arm, which is the rest of the amino acids that try to get the tool in the right position to do its work? Yeah. Uh, positioning and precisement is extremely important uh, for the activity of enzymes. Some enzymes are so fast converting a certain substrate into a product that they approach the diffusion limit. So diffusion limit is how fast molecules can move, for instance, in water. So uh, acetylcholinesterase is one of the extremely fast enzymes, and this is important in our body uh, for the um, uh, transition of nerve signals. So the compound acetylcholine is hydrolyzed by this acetylcholinesterase with an incredible speed, and uh, this needs precise active sites. It needs also precise entrance to the active site and it needs a good exit from the exit site because the product formed also must mm. leave the enzyme as fast as possible. So in order to make natural enzymes better, keeping in mind that we had billions of years of natural evolution in microbes, in animals, in plants, in all species, How can we make them better and why should we make them better if nature had so much time to do this? Um, first yeah. of all, we need to do this because we often use enzymes for reactions which they in principle catalyze in nature, but we use them for totally different types of molecules we want to make. As I mentioned before, lipases I have used already in my PhD, these enzymes cleave lipids, fats, and oils. So a triglyceride like olive oil from your pizza, when you eat it, the triglyceride is hydrolyzed and you get the free fatty acids and the glycerol by lipase. This takes place in our body during the digestion. And also we have to keep in mind the concentration of the substrate in the cell is very low. We talk about the micromolar range. But if we want to use the same type of enzyme a lipase to make a molecule for organic chemistry, we probably want to work at 100 grams per liter and we probably want to work at 60 degrees and not 37. And maybe we have to add a little bit of organic solvent in order to solubilize the substrate and suddenly the enzyme can make the reaction, but it slows down. And in order to make it yeah. efficient, we have to improve it. And this is where methods of protein engineering or enzyme engineering come into place. And now, what's the difference? Why is rational design called rational? And what's the and what's directed evolution? The rational design is called rational uh, for a simple reason. As I said at the beginning, um, what scientists usually do, they make the protein, 
in former times it was extracted from a microbe and then purified or from a plant or animal extract like pig liver esterase extracted from pig liver. But now we can produce enzymes recombinantly in, for instance, a bacterium E. coli or in a yeast like Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which we use for making beer. And then we have this protein in a relatively high concentration, but we have to purify it from the other proteins of the host organism. Uh, this is done by standard biochemical methods. And then the, the pure protein needs to be crystallized. And this is, of course, tricky mm -hmm. uh, because proteins are not easy to crystallize, so there are experts for this. And once you have the crystal of the protein, you use X-ray technology and can determine its three-dimensional structure in a very precise fashion. And with the tools which we have at hand since half a century, so to speak, uh, we can visualize the protein structure then on our computer. And we can also dock a substrate into the active site and see, ah, here is a side chain of the substrate which blocks a little bit, which is a little bit blocked in the active site. Or here the tunnel is a little bit too narrow. We have to make more space. Um, or um, we figure out that maybe for a new type of substrate, we have to shape the active site in a totally different fashion, make it more hydrophilic or more hydrophobic. And because uh, you can plan this on the computer and you can predict that at a certain position, you have to exchange, for instance, a tryptophan residue by a phenylalanin residue. This is called rational design because you can plan this on the computer, mm -hmm. um, which was in the early days, let's say in the 80s, still very difficult to predict. It needed a lot of computer power. You couldn't do this on a normal standard PC mm -hmm. uh, on your in your office, you needed sophisticated computers and sophisticated software and sophisticated experts for this. This has changed, of course, a lot. Mm -hmm. Now there are ready to use tools available to visualize uh, the protein structure. You can do sophisticated um, predictions on the computer. And very often we can solve uh, the problem by using this rational design. But there are still limitations. The limit one limitation is uh, a crystal is a solid component. The protein is, of course, dissolved in a cell where it usually is doing its job. So there is motion. And also, you might not remember this from school, um, that there's a so-called uh, key and lock principle, which means the substrate is a key and the protein is a lock. So the substrate fits into the protein. But later there was an induced fit concept from Koshland where he already proposed that there are dynamics in the protein. It opens up to bind the substrate. Then the reaction takes place and then it opens up again to release the product. And this you cannot reliably predict from a crystal structure of the, let's say, empty protein without a substrate bound. So people used um, special tricks to visualize how the protein looks like when the substrate is bound. You can synthesize so-called transition state analogs, bind them to the protein, and then you at least see two snapshots without the substrate and with the substrate bound. And of course, now there are very sophisticated computer programs to see also the motions which take place in between. Mm. So it is a lot of work 
that's going into rational design and thinking about how the mechanics yes. work, yeah. if I understand yeah. correctly. So how is the different from directed evolution? Uh, directed evolution is can be considered as playing in the lottery. Um, the basic is you <clears throat> have the gene encoding the protein you want, would like to study. And then by certain molecular biology methods, you introduce exchanges randomly of the nucleotides um, along the entire protein encoding sequence. So for each amino acid, there are three nucleotides. And if you have 200 amino acid proteins, you have 600 nucleotides. And if you exchange one, two, three, four randomly, there are a lot of possible exchanges. And these, of course, may lead to a change in the amino acid sequence. And a change in the amino acid sequence may lead to a change in the property of the enzyme. So you might argue with this huge sequence space, uh, which I mentioned at the beginning of 20 to the power of 200, the chances are very little that you will make a hit uh, when you just do this random mutagenesis. But then, of course, playing lotto is also, uh, when you calculate this and predict the probability, it would make no sense to play lotto because the chance to become a millionaire is extremely low. But there are people who become millionaires. And so we also try to play lotto and solve our problem by using random mutagenesis. The most prominent method is called error-prone PCR. PCR is polymerase chain reaction, and you all know this for, since uh, the COVID times for sure, because uh, you were tested whether you are infected or not by using this PCR, which in principle makes copies of a gene 100,000 times. But when you change the conditions of the PCR, you... Uh, the enzyme responsible for this polymerase will make errors. And these are then reflected in the copies. Imagine you have a copy machine. You put a piece of paper on it with a certain text. You tip, you uh, ask for 100,000 copies. And every now and then there's a misprint in your text. Of course, you don't want this. And you would give this copy machine back to the producer. But here we have these misprints in the gene. And eventually there's a hit in hidden in these millions and zillions of variants. So the trick in directed evolution is I have to use a method which introduces random mutations. And the next issue, challenge, problem is how can I find my hit? Because suddenly you have these millions of variants, a few of them uh, encode for an approved enzyme and then uh, people in the 90s had to invent high-throughput screening methods in order to identify the best hit as fast as possible uh, in the lab um, <clears throat> to solve your problem not in five years, but to solve it tomorrow, um, to identify the variant which has slightly improved activity, more thermostability, more organic solvent tolerance. Um, and because this method was demonstrated to be extremely useful. Many, many scientists worldwide started to use directed evolution, including myself at the beginning of my habilitation. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of my, my first papers is called directed evolution of an asterisk, uh, where I applied such methods. 
and it indeed over the decades solved so many problems um, also in an industrial context where uh, directed evolution is one of the key methods to improve enzymes or at least to identify new hotspots in the protein, which you can then analyze using rational design and nowadays, of course, with machine learning tools. Mm. Yes. So um, my typical analogy to machine learners would be, well, it's kind of like random optimization where you just take your parameter space. In this case, it's the sequence space of the enzyme and you shuffle it around a bit randomly and you hope something improves what you're trying to improve. And what, what, whenever you hit um, such an improved sequence, you take it. The big problem compared to machine learning is that in machine learning, you typically your computer can tell you uh, if you did better. Whereas in chemistry, you first have to develop methods, as you say, high throughput screening assays, as biochemists uh, call like the basic analysis kit um, or the basic analysis tool. You have to develop assays in order to find out what is actually the improved variant and have I hit one? And is this the better sequence? That I yeah, that is absolutely correct. And this already points out one of the major limitations of directed evolution um, as it was conceptually started in the mid or early 90s. Um, <clears throat> because of that problem that it's not easy to invent and implement an essay to screen hundreds of thousands of variants in the lab, uh, just think about the poor PhD student or postdoc who has to um, express and screen all these variants, usually in microtiter plates, uh, with uh, a lot of equipment required for that. So this can take a very long time. Uh, that is with the motivation to combine these approaches. So people started to take a structure of a protein. They know where the music plays around the active site, but they don't know which amino acids do I need to exchange and maybe what is the best replacement. So you do a sort of random mutagenesis at three or four residues, but not over the entire protein. And when you keep in mind that mm -hmm. for one amino acid, there are 19 replacements, 20 amino acids are the natural ones, and you go for three positions, you have already 20 times 20 times 20, makes 8,000 possible combinations. And to cover them statistically, you have to screen almost 100,000 variants. Even that is a big number to study in the lab. We and other groups develop methods to screen 100,000 within a few weeks, uh, but still this number is too high. And that is why minimum 10 years ago, scientists like you, Ingmar, started to develop sophisticated computer programs to create what we call small but smart libraries so that you use more information from databases, from bioinformatic analysis to narrow down the possible 8,000 combinations for the three positions to maybe 250, which makes sense because the, each substitution has to interact with the other one. And then you can use computer programs to um, only make the mutations which seem to make sense in their combination. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the additional advantage is that nowadays there are approximately 2.4 billion amino 
acid sequences for proteins in, uh, in public databases. There are only about 200,000 3D structures of proteins in the protein structure database. 200 million versus 2.4 billion. So there's a rich source of information about all these proteins in the databases. And of course, you cannot scroll through them with your mouse on your computer. You need sophisticated programs. And they can, of course, analyze this first uh, for your specific enzyme of interest. But if I just look at the lipase, there are for sure, I don't know, 100,000 sequences, 200,000 sequences. And then with the help of software, including machine learning tools, you can narrow this down to the most interesting um, sequence relationships. There's, for instance, a method called sequence similarity networks. There are methods called ancestral sequence reconstruction, where you look, let's say, historically into the evolution background and figure out that maybe older enzymes um, occurring earlier on this planet could have been more generalist enzymes, which could catalyze a broader range of reactions under broader reaction conditions. And then you might learn from their sequence how to improve your modern enzyme. So all these tools together made our life much easier because we can solve problems uh, on how to make an enzyme better for a given application by using sophisticated computational tools. Um, okay, so maybe... To shift gears a bit, can you tell me about what is it like for you? What, what excites you about tutoring people, taking people into your group and um, helping them grow? Like what excites you as a supervisor? As a supervisor, there are well, several aspects which excite me. Of course, at the university, I also have to do my teaching. And uh, I I'm, I'm think my students will agree that I put efforts in my teaching, that I'm really happy to teach the students, uh, that I also try to make my uh, teaching aspects, uh, aspects for everything I have to teach uh, up to, to keep this up to date. And for me, the Corona uh, period was more or less a disaster uh, in terms of teaching because I still enjoy to teach half of my lectures on the whiteboard or blackboard with chalk. Of course, there is PowerPoint, there are presentations which are in Moodle so the students can look this up, but I enjoy explaining things uh, in more detail on the blackboard, uh, which also increases the chance that the students will understand and follow uh, in, <clears throat> instead of just clicking through a bunch of slides and uh, believe that they understood everything. So the teaching is uh, very important um, for that reason, because I like it. Uh, it's also that you um, have the chance to give the students not only part of your knowledge in a certain field, but that you can also uh, transfer your enthusiasm for a given research area mm -hmm. or subject. Um, and I often see that students who listen to my lectures, which start for them in the fifth semester, biotechnology comes relatively late in the biochemistry courses, that they suddenly become interested to do the bachelor thesis in my group. And then in the master mm -hmm. studies, two years later, they also want to join my group for the master thesis. And then I have many Uh, students have had many students in the past where I could really see how they evolved uh, from an undergraduate student um, 
getting fascinated about the things you can do in biocatalysis using protein engineering. And then suddenly they end up as PhD students in my group and I can see a steep learning curve and a huge motivation curve mm -hmm. <clears throat> for them and uh, to make them also yeah, full-blooded scientists to solve scientific problems for, let's say, a better world and not only a PhD title. This is the best return of investment you can get as a university teacher. Um, and that's why I'm also very happy that 75 PhD students finished their PhD in the past uh, already, as you mentioned at the beginning. And currently I have 15 in my group, so I think I can have 90 until I retire or so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you will, you will complete the 90. So it's, uh, it's a lot about the transfer of excitement and seeing the people grow as yes. well, right? As a, yeah, that is an important driving force. The other driving force is, of course, that we scientists should also help to solve problems uh, challenging mankind to be really bold. Mm -hmm. um, if we are able to develop a new enzymatic process implemented in industry to make, for instance, a chiral building block for a pharmaceutical, this will have an impact, even if most people have no clue how their drug is made when they get a cholesterol-lowering drug or something like that. Um, we can save a lot of solvents, organic solvents. We can save the use or avoid the use of transition metals. We can save energy and altogether this has a positive impact on the greenhouse gas emission, which is lowered in all other aspects. This is part of my driving force. Other projects we work on deal with plastic degradation. And um, this, of course, can be done by mechanical recycling, where you just make smaller pieces out of it and then add, I don't know, 10% of this mechanical uh, recycled material to the new polymer made from petrol. Then there is a chemical method to recycle plastics, of course. So you also may gain the building blocks mm -hmm. uh, to make new plastics, but then you have a high energy input. And since uh, quite a while, scientists like me also investigate the enzymatic recycling or degradation of plastics. And here the challenge is huge mm -hmm. because Plastics are polymers not made by nature. They were invented by chemists. They are natural polymers. Proteins are also natural polymers. Cellulose, lignin are natural mm. polymers. But um, plastics are made from by chemists. Um, and PET, for instance, was invented in 1941, where you just connect terephthalic acid and ethylene glycol, and you make the PET, Uh, for the drinking bottles or for your t-shirt, which when it says polyester, it's for sure polyethylene terephthalate. The challenge is not to hydrolyze the ester bond in these polyesters because there are many esterases and lipases. So the chemistry in the enzyme will work. Uh, the challenge is that you have a very hydrophobic polymer surface. Uh, the fibers, which you cannot see, of course, of such a chemical polymer, might not be able to enter the active side of the enzyme. And uh, mm. <clears throat> people believe for a long time that it's impossible to degrade plastics, which is, of course, true for most plastics. Otherwise, our window frames made from plastic would disappear after a few years. Uh, or if you put 
plastic tubes in the soil, like for your drainage from your house, they would also disappear after a few years, but they don't. So it's a very inert material, which we want to use and like to use and need to use. But at the same time, there are good reasons why certain plastics should be recycled or degraded because they spoil the environment, not only in the oceans, but also at land. And then people set out to look for esterases, which can act on PET. And the first enzyme was discovered 2005, another breakthrough was 2016. Um, but there was a lot of enzyme engineering necessary to make the enzymes very efficient and to get complete hydrolysis. And they must mm -hmm. do this at higher temperature, around 70 degrees centigrade, because the plastic occurs in the crystalline structure until 70 degrees, which cannot be hydrolyzed. So this, uh, I think, is also a very important topic, also for my group, because we can clearly say if we succeed in finding and creating enzymes to recycle plastics, Everybody will understand this, and it's an important technology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, what you mentioned—the hydrophobicity of the of the polymer—that is basically a problem to explain it to the audience because enzymes often work in a solution in water. So you basically put them in water, and they really like water. And if this plastic doesn't like water, that becomes a problem. Is yeah, that, that is correct? correct, of course. I mean, when I go back to the example with the lipase, when you put olive oil in water, like when you want to cook spaghetti, you usually should uh, not mm. only boil the water, you add some olive oil um, to it, and then you can see mm. clearly the olive oil droplets swimming on the water. So there's the interface between the hydrophobic mm -hmm. olive oil and the hydrophilic water. And if you mm -hmm. transfer this to plastics, of course, you can simply throw your plastic bottle in water and you see, oh, it swims. Yeah. So how can an enzyme get uh, not only attached to the surface, but find the chain in the poly, the, the chemical bond in the polymer chain to be hydrolyzed? And we know uh, as an analogy mm -hmm. that trees in the forest, when they collapse, that you can see a bunch of fungi living on them. Yeah. Um, And then the fungi also can secrete enzymes, which can degrade the tree, which degrade the lignin, to be more specific. Mm -hmm. Lignin is a natural polymer, very complex. The downside is it works in principle in nature to degrade this polymer, but you can go to the same forest, to the same tree 10 years from now, and it's still there. So it's a very slow process, even for mm -hmm. natural polymers. And for the non-natural chemical mm -hmm. polymers, the challenge is extraordinary more complex and difficult. Mm. Although even there, some microbes have naturally evolved the, the ability to degrade some plastics because people actually went to... Yeah, that is the one I mentioned. Uh, 2016, a Japanese team found um, a microbe, Ideonella zakayensis, on uh, plastic waste, and then they could show it secretes a so-called petase, which can hydrolyze PET, and then uh, a small um, building block is released, and this is taken up by the cell, and there's another enzyme in the cell which can hydrolyze mm -hmm. this, and then the cell can live on terephthalic acid and acetylene glycol. So it can really not only degrade, it can grow on PET. That is very surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the fascinating part that for whatever strange chemical you have where you would never guess that some 
form of living would take that and live off of it, there actually is a form of living that does that. So it's basically like it's it's a very tiny cell that eats plastic um, in order to in order to thrive. Yeah, yeah. There are other exciting examples of enzyme evolution to degrade toxic compounds. For instance, atrazine uh, is a highly toxic compound um, used in pesticides, and uh, people believe there is no natural way to degrade it. And then a certain enzyme called melamine hydrolase, which hydrolyzes melamine, a natural compound evolved with three point mutations mm. to hydrolyze the very toxic atrazine. So evolution works, but it mm. might take a long time. And a hundred years is not a long time in terms of natural evolution. Yeah, this can be thousands of years if you're unlucky. Yeah. Yeah? Yes. So um, maybe to, to get to the end, um, did you think of a third M word? Besides molecules and machine? Yes, correct. Or machines and molecules. I thought about motorbike. Why is that? Yeah, because uh, I like to drive, beside my other hobby sailing, I like to drive my motorbike, um, which has nothing to do with enzymes, of course. Although there's a Yamaha, which is called Yamaha V-Max. Uh, mm -hmm. So maximum speed and the enzyme efficiency is usually also expressed as Vmax over KM or KCAT over KM. Mm -hmm. But I don't have this motorbike, I have another one. Uh, but of course, if you work a lot in the institute with your team doing science, you need a hobby to relax a bit and get your brain free. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is what I enjoy with my motorbike. And um, surprisingly... <clears throat> When you are on vacation and relax, suddenly you have a good idea related mm -hmm. to your work and you come back relaxed and, ah, I have uh, figured out that maybe we should try this or that. I got this idea during my nice motorbike tour through the mountains and here I am. Let's try this. And is it mostly that you ride the motorbike or do you also enjoy fixing it? Uh, that depends on what's broken. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that old uh, and it's quite robust so there's not so much to fix luckily i see okay and what what kind of tours do you do like what do you like especially in the mountains or so with a motorbike usually you enjoy if there are some mountains and if there are some curves uh Greifswald is in a mm. region of germany where it's more or less flat and Yeah, there is a roundabout at the train station, which I would call a curve, uh, but there's not much more. So <laughs> usually I have to make a trip uh, to the mountain area, which is called Harz or Sauerland, so approximately 400 kilometers from here. And then the fun part starts. The Alps are, of course, too far away. Yeah, naturally. And do you do this alone or do you go with a family and take Yeah, not with a family, uh, but I uh, do some tours together with friends. Okay, understood. Super. So thank you, Uwe, for being uh, a guest in Machines and Molecules. And um, it was very inspiring to talk to you. And I hope you, you complete the 90. I think the 100 will probably be, would probably be too much of a stretch. Um, I'm not sure. When, when do you retire? <laughs> There are still a few more years to go. So uh, we will see okay. whether I reach the 100 Maybe or not. Maybe we get. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We will see. Yeah. Thanks yes. a lot for inviting Super. me, and I enjoyed it very much to discuss all these aspects with you. Thank you, Uber. Bye bye. bye, -bye.